Vision, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax as we deliver another half an hour of science news, views and information. I'm Darren Osborne and on this edition we'll feature Patrick Ruby who will be puckering up under the mistletoe. Ian Wolfe will be telling us all about Otto the German octopus and Victoria Bond will challenge you with a game of Who Am I? But first up, here's the news. In a good mood, your neighbour, her friends, and even her friends' friends should thank you. You're likely to be infecting them with your cheer. Happiness spreads through social networks about as easily as the flu, according to a new study. The researchers analysed data compiled from nearly 5,000 interconnected people over a 20-year period. After establishing a baseline mood for each participant, the team found that when one person became happier, it rippled through the network, increasing the likelihood that others would become happier too. Sadness, thankfully, is not nearly as infectious. An attack of the blues creates a much smaller ripple than a case of giddiness, said head researcher James Fowler of the University of California, San Diego. A happy infection lasts an average of 12 months, Fowler said. That is, if your neighbour wins the lotto, it could give you a mood boost for about a year. And a joy virus can spread to people three degrees removed from the original mood shifter. So someone experiencing bliss makes his friends happier, his friends' neighbours happier, and even his friends' neighbours' friends happier. The ripple of joy continues diffusing. Hmm, diffusing, over all of society, Fowler theorised. But it is undetectable past the third degree of separation because it is part of a whole sea of different cascades of happiness and unhappiness. The infectiousness of certain behaviours, such as overeating, smoking and innovating, began making headlines over a year ago. The study in the current online issue of the British Medical Journal is the first to show the contagiousness of an emotion. Ever wondered how Santa Claus can travel around the world in just one night on his reindeer-pulled sleigh and deliver toys to all the children? He exploits the space-time continuum, says Larry Silverberg, a professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at North Carolina State University. Santa's magic may go far beyond merely travelling across 322 million square kilometres to visit hundreds of millions of homes of children in just one night. He understands that space stretches, he understands that you can stretch time, compress space, and therefore he can, in a sense, actually have six Santa months to deliver the presents. It appears as though he does it in the wink of an eye, and in fact there have been sightings of Santa, quick sightings, and that's in our reference frame, but in Santa's reference frame, he really has six months. Silverberg says his research has established that Santa does not, as commonly thought, carry enough presents for each child in his sleigh. How could he, he says. We believe that he uses nanotechnology to grow the presents under the tree, and really, what he's done is he's figured out how to turn what we call irreversible thermodynamic properties into reversible ones, and so he really starts out with soot, candy, and other types of natural materials. He puts them under the tree, and he actually grows them in a reverse process to create the presents, wrapping and all. 
And then there's the age-old question that Santa has to address every year. Who's been naughty and who's been nice? We believe that there are large antennas miles long under the snow up at the North Pole. And we think that the grid spacing is the order of millimetres so that you can receive radar-type signals, says Silverberg. Santa's trip takes in all continents and all time zones. Silverberg says his sleigh is equipped with an onboard sleigh guidance system. He says the reindeer are genetically bred to fly, balance on rooftops and see in the dark. Silverberg has been researching Santa for more than a decade. It's certainly a worthy thing to spend time on, and it has all sorts of ramifications in everyday life. And that was Sarah Palin. Oh, sorry, I mean um, Emily Shulman with the Dinosaur Song. Well, pucker up, listeners, for a Christmas kiss. But will it be a good one or a bad one? Here's Patrick. Um, I've noticed you around. I find you very attractive. The mistletoe is an evolutionary anti-villain. It's a bad boy with a few redeeming traits that keeps us guessing. Nasty, but necessary in the plant and animal world. Therapeutic, but also toxic in the human world. And yet for many of us, it makes Christmas one of the sexiest holidays. Mistletoe is a word used to describe hemiparasitic plants that grow on trees and shrubs. They can be grouped into five massive families that grow in both temperate and tropical climates throughout the world. They are hemiparasites because they usually obtain water and minerals from their host, but have their own evergreen leaves that carry out some photosynthesis. So they do make a bit of energy for themselves. Mistletoes reproduce by flowering and producing fruit with seeds. Birds and insects pollinate the flowers. The plant then produces fruit. Once a bird has eaten the fruit, the seeds are released and contain a sticky outer coating called viskin. This helps them to stick to the branches of nearby trees and initiate the new invasion of a new host. Once it invades the new host and starts feeding off it, it starts to limit the host's growth and can actually kill its host in heavy infestations. Doesn't sound like a very nice plant so far, does it? Except for the birds and the bees, that is. So what are our bad boys' redeeming features? Some birds, such as the northern spotted owl and the marbled murrelet, nest in North American dwarf mistletoes. Scientific research published in the Science News in 2002 has shown that junipers that grow near mistletoes are more likely to have their fruit eaten by feeding birds. So it's a bit like hanging around a good-looking friend to improve your chances of picking up. And of course, mistletoes can be good for us too. The tradition of kissing under the mistletoe is thought to originate from Scandinavia. 
The mistletoe was considered a symbol of peace in ancient times. So if two enemies met each other under the mistletoe, they laid down their arms and agreed not to fight that day. The kissing part must have come later in history. Our current Christmassy mistletoes come in lots of shapes and sizes. The traditional Christmas decoration is the European mistletoe, Viscum album, from the Santa Lucia family. The North American mistletoe is Phorodendrum serotinum, also from the Santa Lucia family. In Australia, we have 85 species of wild mistletoe from both the Laurentiaceae and Santa Lucia families. The mistletoe was thought to be magical in Celtic times and was given to both animals and humans to treat various diseases. In the early 20th century, it was first noticed to have a positive effect on cancer patients. It is now used sometimes in Europe as an adjunct therapy to chemotherapy. Let's have a closer look at the medicine. I find you very attractive. Would you... Um... According to DrugDigest.org, European mistletoe seems to be the best for use in medicine. In other words, it's the least toxic. Laboratory experiments have shown that it might help kill fast-growing cancer cells. In clinical studies, injections of mistletoe have been shown to slow the progression of breast cancers, stomach cancers, and colon cancers. However, the evidence is still quite weak. So far, it doesn't seem to be that good in fighting cancers on its own. But when used with chemotherapy, it might help reduce side effects and improve general health. How does it work? Well, our ambiguous friend hasn't revealed all its secrets just yet. We know chemotherapy destroys growing cells. Cancer cells are cells that are no longer under our control. They are anarchists, not bound by the rules other cells follow, and are free to grow and divide at their own pace as long as there are enough nutrients for them. By killing growing and dividing cells with chemotherapy, we kill some cancer cells. But we usually kill some normal growing cells as well, such as our white blood cells and the cells lining our gut and skin. This is where our mysterious mistletoe might help us. There is some evidence that mistletoe can boost our white blood cells and immune system. This can reduce some of the side effects of chemotherapy and cancer patients feel better generally. A review of mistletoe treatments published in the Cochrane Database Systems Review in 2007 found that mistletoe had a weak benefit on improving life in breast cancer patients. Some of the trials of mistletoe so far have been badly designed, so it's hard to say one way or another if it's doing any good. It remains a bit of a dark horse. There are some trials which have shown that immune-boosting effects of mistletoe might help slow progression of HIV and hepatitis C when given in conjunction with normal antiviral therapies. When it comes to some of the side effects, our boy turns a little bad again. If you were to pick some unprocessed mistletoe and eat it, you could poison yourself. Mistletoes can make you vomit, give you diarrhea and stomach pain, and they can also make your blood pressure drop. Some of these side effects can still be experienced in the injectable preparations. In addition, mistletoe can cause miscarriages in pregnant women. So what is the final verdict on our famous vampire plant? Is it a tree-killing toxic pest or a misunderstood moocher waiting to reveal its true colours? How good will this kiss be?
Thanks, Pat, for that Christmas kiss under the vampire plan. Was it good for you too? You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvellous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of sciences found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. The scientist, she falls asleep at her machine. The Now here's Ian to tell us all about the mayhem caused by a fed-up octopus named Otto. An octopus has caused havoc in his aquarium by performing juggling tricks using his fellow occupants, smashing rocks against the glass and turning off the power by short-circuiting a lamp. Staff believe the octopus, called Otto, has been annoyed by the bright light shining into his aquarium and had discovered he could extinguish it by climbing onto the rim of his tank and squirting a jet of water in its direction. The short circuit had baffled electricians as well as staff at the Sea Star Aquarium in Coburg, Germany, so they decided to take shifts sleeping on the floor to find out what caused the mysterious blackouts. 
A spokesman said it was a serious matter because it shorted the electricity supply to the whole aquarium and that threatened the lives of the other animals when the water pumps ceased to work. It was the third night that they found out that it was Otto the octopus that was responsible for the chaos. They knew he was bored as the aquarium is closed for the winter and at 2 feet 7 inches, Otto had discovered he was big enough to swing onto the edge of his tank and shoot out the 2,000 watt spotlight above him with a carefully directed jet of water. Director Alfred Kilmer, who witnessed the act, said we've put the light a bit higher now so he shouldn't be able to reach it, but Otto is constantly craving for attention and always comes up with new stunts, so we've realised we'll have to keep a more careful eye on him and also perhaps give him a few more toys to play with. Once we saw him juggling the hermit crabs in his tank, another time he threw stones against the glass damaging it, and from time to time he completely rearranges his tank to make it suit his own taste better much to the distress of his fellow tank inhabitants. Now, what sort of toys might they give him? Well, Nature's blog reports that scientists have given other octopuses Rubik's Cubes in an attempt to determine if they have a favoured tentacle, just like we have a favoured arm or hand, to see if they might be octodectrous, a word they seem to have invented just for that story. According to a number of British papers, around 25 octopuses at aquariums across Europe will be given toys and visitors will be asked to record which arm they're using to play with them, using a diagram showing the arms as R1, R2, R3, R4, and L1, L2, L3, and L4. Octopuses have more than half their nerves in their arms, have been shown to partially think with their arms, says Claire Little of the Weymouth Sea Life Centre. Many animals have been shown to favour a certain arm, so we'll see if octopuses can be added to that list. She says the findings could help make life in captivity more pleasant for the animals. They're very susceptible to stress, so if they do have a favourite side to be fed on, it could reduce the risk to them. No one suggested that any of the octopuses might actually solve the Rubik's Cube, but there's a slim chance that they might. Thanks for that story, Ian. Sounds like Otto might become a plate of calamari if he keeps up that behaviour for too long. Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Now it's time to put on your thinking caps as Victoria challenges your knowledge about diseases. So on this episode of Diffusion, we're going to be playing a little game called Who Am I? where I will describe a disease and you'll guess which one it is. I'm Victoria Bond and I'll be asking the questions and my good friend Jamie LeClaire will be trying to guess the answers. You should try to guess as well um, from wherever you are in your car commuting or listening at home. So here we go. Number one, I am the top infectious disease killer in developing countries. Now, we have a few choices. Hmm. Is it A, malaria, B, lower respiratory diseases like pneumonia, C, tuberculosis, D, hepatitis B, or E, AIDS? 
So once again, the question was, what's the top infectious disease killer in developing countries? So, you know, I think a lot of people have tuberculosis, but I'm not sure that a lot of people die from it. And I know a lot of people die from AIDS, but I'm not sure it's the top killer. So maybe it's malaria? Uh-oh. No. Oh. No, I'm afraid the answer was B which is lower respiratory diseases, things like pneumonia that you can just transmit by coughing. I would have never guessed that. Yeah, it's just, huh. have no health infrastructures, it's a pretty big killer. All right, so let's move on to question number two. Yes. Uh, question number two. I am the most common infectious disease in the world. The one people get most often. Okay. All right, so we have the same options as before. Um, am I A, malaria? B. Lower respiratory disease, C. Tuberculosis, hepatitis B, or E. AIDS. Okay, so the last question I said that tuberculosis is really common, mm -hmm. so that could be it. I know that, but I don't know, I feel like that might be a trick question. <laughs> These are probably all trick questions. Oh, they're not. They're just. They're just the truth. I, <laughs> I'm the not truth. out there to get you. The truth is sad. Um, okay, I'm gonna guess um, hepatitis B. Actually, hepatitis B. I'm going last second. All right, listeners, do you have your answer ready? Is B hepatitis B? Very good. Yes. Um, so it's a little bit more about Hep B. It's actually a virus, but it's transmitted by cough, like the common cold. Um, yeah, and you can get um, vaccines for hepatitis B, which a lot of people get, you know, if they're going to be working in hospitals. And um, one of the big baddies about hep B is that it causes liver damage. Ah. So cirrhosis. Next, over 2 billion people worldwide. So that's over a third of the world's population has hepatitis B. Um, you, you mentioned TB earlier, and... You're pretty close because mm -hmm. it's the most common disease caused by bacteria. Ah. But hepatitis B is just the most common disease, generally. I'm um, glad I changed my answer at the last second. Excellent. They always say go with your good instinct, but not this time. Not this time. So um, TB is really interesting because a lot of people have it, so two billion people, but only 10% of them actually have the symptoms. So, you know, oh. like coughing blood in the old Victorian movies. Um, <laughs> however, if you have AIDS, that 10% in a lifetime changes to 10% per year will develop symptoms. Ah. So, it's so it compounds all everything. Yeah. Bad. It's terrible. Okay. <clears throat> all right. So are you ready to move on to question number three? Yep. All right. Who am I? I am a parasite which lives in red blood cells. Is it A, malaria, B, lower respiratory infections, C, tuberculosis, D, Hep B, or E, AIDS? Well, to be honest, I only know this one because I know one is a parasite. I didn't quite know which one lives in the red blood cells, but I know that malaria is caused by a parasite. So, is malaria your answer? Yes. Do you have your answer, listeners? Alright. The answer is A, malaria. Very yes. good. <sighs> so yeah, malaria lives in the red blood cells. That's, that's basically how it matures, and when it does that, it destroys them, which is what causes fevers and, you know, all those bad okay. symptoms. Alright, now we're moving on to the last question. Alright. So, I am a virus 
which infects cells of the immune system. Oh. So is it malaria, lower respiratory infections, tuberculosis, hepatitis B, or AIDS? Well, assuming that AIDS stands for autoimmune deficiency syndrome, <laughs> I'm going to go with AIDS. Very good. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. You're just, you're too clever. Did you get that, listeners? <laughs> so the answer is AIDS. And what AIDS does is it targets helper T cells, which are cells that help boost the immune response to common diseases. And so that's why people who have AIDS kind of develop these strange diseases that they should be able to throw off. And that's why tuberculosis just gets so much worse. Because they have no more immune system. Okay. What All was right. my score? I don't remember. <laughs> I think you got two... You got my three. My score was awesome. It was great. <laughs> yeah. How did you do? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> All right. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravity... And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, or if you've got feedback, comments, suggestions, or just wildly passionate praise, um, or you want to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on the radio, then send us an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at number 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website at www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mark West, Patrick Ruby, Ian Wolfe and Victoria Bond. Diffusion has been produced by Patrick Ruby in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Darren Osborne. Join us inside your audio device of your choice for more Science Wandering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, the scientist by Tales from the Birdbath. The scientist, she falls asleep at her machine. The scientist, while her husband and children dream. The scientist, her tired eyes and tired hands. The scientist, search for the data she has planned. And the scientist, the The scientist, pocket protector, and micro.